there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of murder and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At 30 years old, Vlad the Impaler had already accomplished more than most rulers do in a lifetime. In less than five years, he transformed the Principality of Wallachia from a glorified feudal burg into an efficient, productive territory that was the envy of regions ten times its size. But Vlad wanted more. He wanted to be the most powerful man alive. At the time, that honor belonged to the Ottoman Sultan, who controlled vastly more territory, including Wallachia. Vlad technically ruled Wallachia, but he had to pay the Sultan an annual fee for protection. In 1461, he refused. He was going rogue. With this in the back of his mind, a smiling, confident Vlad greeted the Sultan's two emissaries. He told them he wouldn't be making his regular payment. Instead, he told them, he needed them to raise their hats in the same sign of respect paid to him by all of his guests. The emissaries explained to Vlad that they meant no disrespect, but they couldn't remove their hats for religious reasons. Vlad then ordered his guards to grab two large nails, which happened to be lying on the table beside two equally large hammers. With little more than a nod from their boss, the guards seized the emissaries and hammered the nails through their hats directly into their skulls. It was a bold and audacious move, one that Vlad knew would instigate a fight, and Mehmed II, the most powerful ruler on earth, would pose a challenge unlike any other. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is the last episode in our season on medieval dictators. Today we're diving into the second reign of Vlad the Impaler, from his violent and sadistic intimidation methods to the hubris that led to his eventual death. Intimidation was hardly a novel way for a ruler to wield power, 
but no one had utilized it quite as boldly or horrifically as Vlad the Impaler, who killed his perceived enemies brutally and indiscriminately until there was almost no one left in Wallachia to oppose him. It's hard to say whether he was born a sadist or if that trait was drilled into him in childhood. If it was learned, it resulted from Vlad and his younger brother Radu being used as political pawns by their father, who left them in the court of Sultan Murad II to avoid his own execution. During this time, Radu adapted to life with his Ottoman subjugators, becoming the lover of the future Sultan Mehmed II and even converting to Islam. Vlad, however, refused to capitulate, especially by renouncing his faith. His father had taken pride in being part of the Order of the Dragon, taking an oath to protect Europe and its Christian territory from Muslim invaders. An oath that Vlad himself would attempt to carry out years later. Vlad did, however, gain valuable knowledge and experience in the Ottoman court. This ranged from studies in foreign language to working with trained fighters in hand-to-hand combat. All of it would eventually fuel his rise to power. But he also endured considerable physical abuse in the Ottoman court as punishment for his stubborn, combative attitude. This led not only to Vlad's warped perception of the value of human life, but also his singular focus on revenge and power. Contrary to popular belief, though, Vlad wasn't just a deranged tyrant who tortured and displayed his victims' dead bodies. He was a gifted scholar, an athletic and effective soldier, and a brilliant military strategist. But most of all, he was a highly effective and efficient ruler. In fact, he was the first ruler in Eastern Europe who attempted to consolidate power by eliminating the centuries-old feudal system. This was partly to take power away from the aristocrats, but he also elevated poor peasants to higher social and governmental positions in the process. This earned him the people's trust and loyalty. Vlad knew that the peasants accounted for the vast majority of his subjects. He needed their loyalty not only to survive as ruler, but to enlist them as soldiers in any future military campaigns. But it wasn't all smiles and sunshine for the Wallachian peasantry. Anyone who didn't meet Vlad's exacting standards was punished in the most horrifying ways imaginable. Vlad was so strict when it came to loyalty that he took to enforcing it himself. In fact, he was known to travel around the villages donning disguises to spy on the peasants and root out anyone he deemed disloyal or lazy. For these unfortunate souls, he assembled haphazard people's courts in which he, Vlad, would preside as judge. In a famous Romanian ballad describing the Wallachian ruler's distaste for laziness, Vlad supposedly meets a peasant in ill-fitting ragged clothes. Vlad orders the man to appear before him in court and inquires, Are you married? After receiving an answer in the affirmative, Vlad responds, Your wife is assuredly of the kind who remains idle. How is it possible that your shirt does not cover the calf of your leg? She is not worthy of living in my realm. May she perish. With that, he orders the woman impaled and selects a new wife for the peasant. 
Knowing Vlad's penchant for cruelty and capriciousness, it's not inconceivable that this event actually took place. And although Vlad earned a reputation as a man of the people, that kindness did not extend to the aged or sick. This segment of the population he believed was a drain on society, and he had many of them impaled simply for not being as healthy and productive as he would have liked. Vlad also harbored a particularly fierce disdain for Romani people, since they were traveling nomads who weren't technically Wallachian citizens. In one case, Vlad sentenced a Romani man to death by impalement for the crime of stealing. When the man protested that death by impalement was contrary to gypsy law, Vlad agreed and instead ordered him to be boiled alive in a massive cauldron. Then he ordered the tribe to eat the man's boiled flesh. As a result of Vlad's terrifying methods, stealing at all levels virtually evaporated during his reign. And while Vlad may have done the most to improve the lives of peasants, he also went to great lengths to protect foreign and local merchants. Wallachia served as a crossroads between Eastern and Western Europe and the territory of Constantinople, meaning that virtually every merchant traveling to or from one of those destinations had to pass through. In one instance, a Florentine merchant was passing through Wallachia in a carriage full of money and wares. When he reached the capital city of Tergoviste, he went to Vlad's palace and asked him for a few peasants to watch over his goods for the night. Instead, Vlad told the man to leave his money and wares in the public square and spend the night as a guest in his castle. Not knowing what else to do, the merchant acquiesced. The next morning, he was shocked to discover that no one had stolen his goods, but they had made off with 160 gold ducats. He immediately informed Vlad about the missing money. Vlad told the merchant not to worry. He would find both the money and the thief immediately. With the merchant out of earshot, Vlad ordered his men to replace the money and add an extra ducat. A short time later, the merchant returned to his cart and discovered that the money had been returned along with an extra ducat. Feeling guilty, he returned to the palace to inform Vlad. Just as he entered, Vlad's men were bringing in the captured thief. The merchant informed Vlad, Lord, I have found all the money only with an extra ducat. Vlad gazed at the merchant, then toward the thief before replying, Go in peace. Had you not admitted to the extra ducat, I would have ordered you to be impaled together with this thief. Vlad's reputation for violence and death was well earned. During his reign, it's believed he was responsible for the deaths of almost 100,000 victims. An astonishing figure, considering the population of Wallachia at the time was fewer than 500,000. His reputation was such that during his lifetime, his legends spread all the way across Europe, even though there was no common language and few people could read. Owing to this same lack of cohesion, around this time the balance of power in Europe began to shift. 
European rulers had battled each other for thousands of years. But by the mid-1400s, the constant fighting seemed to have eroded the foundation of an already fragile continent. Only a few years earlier, Mehmed II had become the first foreign ruler to topple Constantinople, sending shockwaves as far as word of the victory could spread. The conquest meant that the Ottomans, enemies to the vast Christian population in Europe, had expanded their territory farther west than ever before. Now they possessed a foothold for military operations just beyond Eastern Europe. And if the Sultan wanted to conquer more of the continent, he'd have to pass directly through Wallachia. No one knew this better than Vlad the Impaler. Bolstered by a string of military victories, overwhelming support at home, and a misguided sense of infallibility, Vlad agreed to take part in a crusade organized by Pope Pius II, a final attempt to stop the Ottoman incursion and drive them out of Europe once and for all. Vlad was one of the only rulers who agreed to participate. Most were too busy fighting their own wars elsewhere and had no interest in engaging with the Sultan. Whether or not Vlad knew that this crusade was doomed to fail, he wouldn't back down. This was the best chance to defeat the Sultan and replace him as the most powerful ruler on earth. When we return, we'll explore the defining battle of Vlad's military career. Now back to the story. With a string of military victories at his back and an unquenchable thirst for power, Vlad the Impaler set his sights on toppling the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II. In 1460, Pope Pius II had requested a new crusade against the Ottomans at the Congress of Mantua, a religious meeting among the rulers of Europe. And Vlad saw this crusade as the perfect opportunity. Pope Pius planned for the campaign to last three years and chose Matthias Corvinus, King of Hungary and the son of John Hunyadi, as its leader. Unfortunately, the only other European leader to show any interest besides Corvinus was Vlad the Impaler. It didn't take long for Sultan Mehmed II to learn of the lack of enthusiasm for the crusade. And while he delighted in knowing that he instilled fear in the hearts of European leaders, he saw the moment as an opportunity for even more conquest. While the crusade was being planned, the Sultan gathered a small faction of his enormously powerful army and launched an offensive in Eastern Europe. It was almost as if he was daring the European powers to come after him. And in this case, they did anything but. The Ottoman army seized the Serbian city of Smederevo, facing little to no resistance from the small, ill-equipped opposing army. During the siege, the Ottoman forces captured a high-ranking Hungarian general and used him to send a message to their king, Matthias Corvinus, a message that was both gruesome and unequivocal. They sawed the general in half. A short time later, Mehmed II overtook the Greek cities of Corinth and Mistra vastly expanding his territory, gathering soldiers, and ensuring that any campaign against him was virtually doomed. 
Ottoman troops also began crossing the Danube in an attempt to recruit the people of Wallachia onto their side. Naturally, this did not sit well with Vlad, who had the Ottoman troops impaled. Technically, Wallachia belonged to the Sultan, in the sense that Vlad had to pay him a fee for protection. But this was a slight Vlad couldn't ignore. Rather than declare an all-out war, Vlad worked methodically. First, he informed the Sultan that he could no longer afford to pay his annual tribute. But he softened the blow by adding that when he could, he would personally deliver the gold himself. It was an odd suggestion, and naturally the Sultan was skeptical, especially after learning about Vlad's alliance with Matthias Corvinus. So Mehmed sent one of his chieftains to meet with Vlad directly. The real purpose of the meeting, however, was for the chieftain and his men to ambush Vlad and bring him to Constantinople. But Vlad had ears everywhere. When the chieftain and his cavalry of 1,000 men crossed a narrow pass near Wallachia, Vlad and his forces were already waiting to ambush them. As was his custom, Vlad impaled the soldiers and, befitting his rank, had the chieftain placed on the highest stake. Emboldened by their victory, Vlad and his forces crossed the Danube to attack the Sultan's territory in Bulgaria and Serbia in what was perhaps his most successful and deadly military campaign. After spending almost his entire childhood in captivity in the Ottoman court, Vlad had become fluent in Turkish. He used this to his advantage. He disguised himself in Turkish garb and infiltrated the Ottoman towns, where he convinced the guards to open the town gates. The moment they did, Vlad's troops charged in and attacked. During a two-week span, Vlad's troops advanced almost 500 miles. Shortly after this campaign, Vlad wrote to Corvinus, I have killed peasant men and women, old and young. We killed 23,884 Turks without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, Your Highness, you must know that I have broken peace. Breaking the peace was a kind way to put it, and Vlad the Impaler wasn't finished yet. As a response to the incursion, Mehmed II sent one of his top generals and a force of 18,000 to destroy a valuable Wallachian port. But once again, Vlad and his men repelled the attack, killing over half the Ottoman troops in the process. The troops who weren't killed, along with thousands of Ottoman civilians, retreated all the way back to Turkey. News of these victories traveled across Europe, where Vlad was celebrated by none other than Pope Pius II. The Sultan, however, was none too pleased. Now he had only one goal, to defeat Vlad the Impaler once and for all. Although Mehmed boasted a vastly larger kingdom and infinitely stronger army, he knew not to underestimate his rival under any circumstances. So he assembled nearly 300,000 troops, including archers, infantrymen, cavalry, and slaves. 
He brought engineers to build roads and bridges should the need arise, along with priests and astrologers to help him with the cosmic aspects of military decision-making. And last, but certainly not least, concubines to please the soldiers. Among his elite troops was Radu the Handsome, Vlad's younger brother and lifelong arch-nemesis, who commanded a fleet of 4,000 troops on horseback. Needless to say, Mehmed was prepared for battle. Vlad's preparation wasn't as thorough. Despite his alliance with Matthias Corvinus, the Hungarian leader refused to provide troops or financial assistance, leaving Vlad largely to his own devices. He was forced to conscript not only his regular troops, but women, children, and a large contingent of enslaved Roma. Even with these additions, Vlad's troops numbered only around 30,000. Not only were they outnumbered, they were vastly outgunned. The Ottoman troops carried the most modern and effective weapons, while Vlad's troops carried only lances, swords, and daggers. The conflict began in early 1462 and would last nearly six excruciating months. And despite a sizable disadvantage, Vlad and his army put up a hell of a fight. Knowing that they stood no chance to win a traditional battle, Vlad turned to unorthodox methods to kill Ottoman troops any way he could. The Wallachian army held the initial advantage against the invading Ottomans and killed 300 elite Ottoman troops the moment they disembarked along the Danube. Then the Wallachian troops retreated and destroyed everything at their back to slow the Ottoman encroachment, including poisoning water sources and burning vast swaths of territory. Vlad even sent bubonic plague victims to infiltrate and infect the Ottoman forces in a novel and fairly disgusting precursor to germ warfare. Even though these methods proved surprisingly effective, they did nothing to stop the Ottoman troops from advancing toward Wallachia and its capital city, Tergoviste. By the time the Ottomans arrived, Vlad and his army, now numbering around 24,000, were holed up in a mountain refuge just beyond the city. It appeared that Vlad was left with two choices, retreat and give up Wallachia, or surrender entirely. But neither of these was in Vlad's DNA. Instead, he did something completely unexpected, foolhardy, and brilliant. Just as he had done in the Bulgarian and Serbian campaigns, Vlad disguised himself as a Turkish soldier and infiltrated enemy lines. Using his fluent Turkish, he ascertained the location of the Sultan's camp, and the next night plotted to return with his troops and kill the Sultan himself. On the night of June 17, 1462, Vlad engaged in his most famous military attack. He arranged for his men to attack the Sultan's camp from two sides, strategically using captured Ottoman soldiers who could enter without causing a stir. Once they were inside the camp, all hell broke loose. Vlad and his troops killed approximately 15,000 Ottomans while only losing 5,000 of their own men. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to locate the Sultan's tent and was unable to kill the man himself. Further complicating matters, only one of Vlad's commanders actually launched his attack. 
the leader of the other half lost his nerve and forfeited an opportunity for a decisive conflict-ending slaughter. Still, according to legend, the Sultan was so discouraged by Vlad's attack that he initially instructed his troops to retreat and return to the Ottoman court. However, two quick-thinking officers convinced him to continue his advance. Once Mehmed and his troops arrived in Tergovište, they discovered that the capital city had been virtually abandoned. Vlad and his army had retreated. They also discovered Vlad's forest of the impaled, the 20,000 corpses arranged on wooden stakes around the castle, with Mehmed's chieftain atop the highest one. Still, with Vlad's troops nowhere to be found, Wallachia was theirs. The Sultan installed Radu as the territory's new ruler. As Radu and his troops surrounded Vlad's castle, which was located atop a nearly 3,000-foot cliff, Vlad's first wife supposedly remarked, I would rather feed the fish of the Argus than fall into Turkish hands, at which point she jumped out of the window and plummeted to her death. Vlad was now a ruler without a kingdom. Knowing he couldn't return to Wallachia, he sought refuge in Hungary under Matthias Corvinus. But Vlad couldn't remain idle for long, not after the power he'd wielded during the past five and a half years. So, unable to resist, he and Corvinus formulated a plan to retake Wallachia from Radu the Handsome. What Vlad didn't know was that Corvinus was out to double-cross him. As Vlad approached Wallachia in the fall of 1462, he was captured by Corvinus's men in an ambush and taken to Hungary, where he was imprisoned. Thirty years after he was first imprisoned as a political pawn in the Ottoman court, Vlad once again found himself behind bars, so to speak. Much like his first incarceration, he was granted privileges unavailable to nearly every other prisoner. In fact, he was less a prisoner than a well-treated hostage. Even while he was in prison, Vlad simply couldn't resist killing things. According to a Russian ambassador of the era, Vlad was in the habit of catching mice and having birds bought at the marketplace so that he could punish them by impalement. He cut off the heads of some of the birds, others he had stripped of their feathers, and then let loose. However, he got along fairly well with his captor. If not a friendship, he and Corvinus developed a mutual appreciation and understanding. And in between torturing small animals, Vlad met and eventually married Elona Selagi, a cousin of Matthias Corvinus, who was now officially the king of Hungary. The marriage may have coincided with Vlad's release, or occurred a short time after. Either way, after four years, he was free. He and Ilona were given a house and land and produced two sons. But Vlad wouldn't rest until he regained the throne in Wallachia or died trying. So with Corvinus's blessing, Vlad and Stephen Bathory, one of the top commanders in Corvinus's army, made plans for an invasion. 
by this time, Radu had died, a passing which seemed to have absolutely no impact on Vlad, and the throne was occupied by a man named Basarab the Elder. Vlad and Stephen Bathory assembled a force of Transylvanian, Wallachian, Hungarian, and Moldovian troops and set out for Wallachia. Would Vlad regain the throne for a third time, or would his luck finally run out? When we return, we'll explore the final chapter in Vlad's life and his enduring legacy as one of Europe's most cruel, yet beloved, dictators. Now, back to the story. After the combined defeat at the hands of his nemesis, Sultan Mehmed II, followed by a four-year imprisonment in Hungary, Vlad was once again thirsty for power. With the blessing of Matthias Corvinus, an approximately 45-year-old Vlad, and Stephen Bathory, an elite Hungarian commander, along with their troops, advanced on Wallachia in late 1476. Perhaps ill-prepared or still intimidated by Vlad's fearsome reputation, Prince Basarab, the current ruler of Wallachia, fled along with his men the moment they approached, which meant that once again, Vlad was the ruler of Wallachia. Unfortunately, Vlad's swan song would only last a short time longer than his first aborted reign. Throughout his life, Vlad amassed a number of enemies. From the aristocrats in and around Wallachia whom he killed or stripped of power, to the Romani people, Ottomans, or anyone related to the hundred thousand people he had killed. Furthermore, Vlad's brother had been a surprisingly popular ruler. Unlike Vlad, he did not terrorize his subjects with violence. Few people were eager for Vlad to be back again. So Basarab the Elder had no trouble assembling a force to fight Vlad the Impaler and reclaim the crown for himself. After only two months, he'd put together an enormous contingent of Ottoman soldiers and took the fight to Wallachia to kill Vlad once and for all. In December 1476, Prince Basarab led a contingent of 4,000 soldiers, twice the number of Vlad's dwindling army, to a monastery not far from Tergoviste. Vlad and his men fought nobly to repel the Ottoman forces, but during the chaos of battle, one Ottoman took matters into his own hands. Unlike modern generals who are stationed nowhere near the front lines, Vlad the Impaler led all of his military attacks and killed his enemies up close and personal. He was right in the middle of the action, engaged in the heat of battle, when his assassin, wielding an enormous sword, snuck up behind him. The Ottoman bided his time, waiting until he could engage Vlad in a clean strike. Then, the moment he had a line on him, he raised his sword and with one fell swoop, decapitated the Wallachian ruler. Then, he grabbed Vlad's severed head, tucked it under his arm, and made his way from the battlefield to a waiting stallion. Wasting no time, he rode directly back to Constantinople with the severed head, where it was presented to Sultan Mehmed II. As a reminder that his most fearsome enemy no longer posed a threat, the Sultan had Vlad's head preserved in honey 
and put on display. It was a fitting and almost respectful ending for the only man whom Sultan Mehmed II considered a noble and worthy foe. According to local legend, after the battle, monks from the monastery saw Vlad's headless body being eaten by wild animals and placed what was left of it in a crypt at the foot of the monastery's main altar. Shortly after Vlad's death, his half-brother, Vlad the Monk, seized power from Basarab, who had once again taken over Wallachia. Vlad the Monk had a relatively long reign from 1482 to 1495, and Vlad's eldest son, Mina, ruled Wallachia from 1508 to 1509, much the same way his father had. According to a local abbot and chronicler of the period, Mina took all the greater boyars captive, worked them hard, cruelly confiscated their property, and even slept with their wives in their presence. He cut off the noses and lips of some, others he hanged, and still others drowned. Mina was assassinated shortly into his reign and didn't have time to earn as ominous a nickname as his father. Instead, he was dubbed simply Mina the Bad. Wallachia remained technically an Ottoman territory by virtue of paying protection to the Ottoman Sultan until roughly 1859, when it united with Moldavia. It officially became the Kingdom of Romania in 1881. Less than a decade later, Bram Stoker created the character Count Dracula, whom many still believe was based on Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Dracula. And while the two may share a few vague similarities, Vlad the Impaler was far more sinister than perhaps any fictional character ever created. Vlad was a sadistic, bloodthirsty tyrant who probably slaughtered more people than any previous dictator, including Ivan the Terrible. And his reputation depends largely on whom you ask. Germans and Turks do not look upon him kindly, owing to his treatment of the Saxons and Ottomans. But to many Romanians and Russians, he's considered a noble hero who reshaped Wallachia into a much more egalitarian society. There have been many rulers and dictators throughout history with dueling, controversial, and exceedingly violent legacies, though few are as violent or cruel as Vlad the Impaler. It's impossible to determine whether Vlad was a psychopath or just a sadist, but he almost certainly harbored a very dim view regarding the value of human life. From a young age, he saw people tortured and killed, and as he got older, Nearly everyone he loved was either murdered or betrayed him. One thing we can be sure of is that Vlad was not insane. Everything he did served a purpose, no matter how twisted. And given his success with a small and outmatched military, he was undoubtedly one of the finest generals and warriors of his era. Nonetheless, and inevitably so, Vlad the Impaler will forever be remembered for inserting large wooden stakes into the orifices of his enemies and leaving them to die an agonizing death. 
Thanks for listening. This was our final episode on medieval dictators. For the next six weeks, we'll be taking on a more modern subject, North Korea's ruling family, the Kim Dynasty. Next week, we'll look at the circumstances that led to Kim Il-sung's rise to power after World War II. Throughout the rest of the season, we'll explore the reign of his son, Kim Jong-il, and his son, Kim Jong-un, and we'll consider why this regime is still standing while so many others have fallen. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 